welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia. And with us today is Vitaly. Vitaly, welcome. Hello, both. It's a pleasure to be here. Delighted to be part of this podcast that I'm a big fan of and uh, have had some good friends and colleagues take part in. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's always nice to have a fan on the show. So would you mind sort of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your PhD? Sure. So about a year ago, I have successfully defended my PhD in Russian studies at the University of Manchester. My research was focusing on the efforts of the Russian state and the various affiliated and involved actors in uh, sort of negotiating the narratives and the image of Russia through such a high-profile event as the um, uh, Sochi Olympics from 2014. So this project was kind of a culmination of my personal, professional and academic curiosity. So it was a bit of a pathway to get there, of course, like it is for uh, all PhD students. My interest in sports, uh, Russian politics, uh, media, they have all overlapped and by uh, a happy coincidence, as it often happens, I guess, in academia, I've landed in Manchester with funding for this project with uh, two great supervisors. And so over the course of four years of my PhD study, I successfully got there. And as I said, it's been a year since I've completed it. So I'm a little bit removed from it. I've been working as a postdoctoral researcher since then. But of course, this is such an interesting topic for me that I am coming back to it. And of course, hoping to to build on my PhD research through future fellowships and hopefully some permanent work in academia. So you said a little bit there about how your PhD represents kind of a confluence of several interests of yours and that it was sort of a pathway that led you there. Could you tell us a bit more about that pathway? Sort of what did you do before the PhD and when did you realise that there was the potential for an exciting project in your interests? I mean, perhaps it might might be worth saying just a little bit about my backgrounds uh, in general then, just because I guess, you know, PhDs are kind of, uh, you know, you, you can perhaps stumble upon something by accident and sort of be at the right time at the right place for the right project to do it. But I think for me, it was a bit of a lifelong sort of journey that got me there. I'm uh, originally Russian, so I was born and raised in Yekaterinburg, in the Ural region of Russia, and my family has eventually moved to Canada. So at this point in my life, I've spent nearly half of my life actually uh, outside of Russia. I completed my BA in Canada at the University of Victoria in Russian studies. It was a little bit of a weird choice. A lot of my friends were making fun of me at the time because, you know, I sort of freshly uh, off the boat from Russia, ended up in university doing a Russian degree. And uh, so as I was saying, you know, my my friends were uh, finding it a little bit curious that uh, I was was pursuing it that way. But a matter of fact was that uh, it was basically an easiest way for me to get my degree the fastest in humanities. Uh, Again, slipping back even one step further, I finished the first year journalism course at the university in Yekaterinburg before my move to Canada. So basically, when I entered the Canadian university, they've accepted a lot of the credits into the Russian studies program because it was, you know, two courses on Russian culture, history, and so on. And that eventually led me to, you know, is the the fastest way to for me to complete a humanities degree. So I ended up with that. As part, as part of my education there, I, I, I had some work experience or co-op education program. And one of the co-op terms was, in fact, at the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympic Games, and I was working at the media center there, basically aiding various international journalists who were attending Canada and covering the games for their various international audiences. 
So even though I mean I wasn't involved with the coverage of the games themselves, you know, it was, it was quite cool to be uh, on the inside, so to speak, and sort of see how how the media center operates and uh, sort of what the machinery is like behind that. Eventually, I've landed with a master's degree in international studies in Denmark, and for my master's dissertation there. My interests were around media representation of Canada as as the host of the uh, uh, of the Olympics, and of course I've sort of used my Vancouver experience there, but also sort of looking back further on on the um, the Montreal and the Calgary Games that took place in in Canada beforehand, and I basically looked at various newspaper coverage. So the master's dissertation was my pathway into sort of into the academic side of exploring what. The combination of media coverage, the combination of political issues that are arising at the time of such high-profile events, and of course, sort of this, the sporting side of the events themselves. And then, as I, I've had an extremely positive experience doing the research and writing up my master's dissertation, I had an excellent supervisor in Denmark, to whom I'm very, very helpful, and uh, she was one of the sort of the person who inspired me to to consider going even further and pursuing the uh, PhD study around the area that I was uh, writing about and naturally it's it, uh, sort of the timing uh, coincided with the Sochi Olympics in Russia having just concluded I think at that point even though obviously I, I wrote my master's thesis on Canada uh, my sort of personal backgrounds and sort of knowledge and interests led me to see whether I can do a similar project on the Russian Olympics that's how I ended up preparing a bit for it and uh, applying in a couple of different places and sort of landing here in Manchester, where a team of researchers and my supervisor included, they've written a paper, they've done some research on the coverage of the Sochi game, so I was basically at the right time, at the right place, with the right projects, which led me to getting the opportunity to, to do my PhD here. That's so cool, and such an interesting and sort of global uh, journey to have sort of done three degrees in three different, well, three and a bit degrees in four different countries. <laughs> Does your project sort of focus on Sochi and the Winter Games or does it sort of dive into the long and extremely interesting history of Russia at the Olympics and sort of, I'm I'm thinking, you know, about the Olympics as a site for the performance of international relations and things like that. Is that something that sort of comes up? It, it certainly does. In my dissertation, I do, do not provide a very detailed sort of historical account of the relationship of the uh, Soviet Union or contemporary Russia with uh, sports. But one of the sort of the key concepts that I use is a concept of a mega event, which you know is a common way to describe the uh, contemporary Olympics. It's this sort of massive projects that require uh, huge investments from the sponsoring state, from the sponsoring societies, great international collaboration, great media interests. And basically, that's my gateway into the discussion, how, how such a project fits with the way the Russian states and sort of various Russian media actors fit into the international community and how they, how they want to sort of position themselves within this community and present it to, to various international observers and the domestic observers as well. But also, I mean, key part of my research is, uh, is looking sort of beyond the elites, the, the states, sort of the, you know, the head of state, Putin and so on which tends to be the focus of uh, much of academic and popular research into such projects, but also looking at the way that various international audiences actually sort of engage with whatever projects such a state as Russia comes up with and how sort of the, the intended images and messages are perceived and interpreted by various audiences outside. So that's really interesting because you talked a little bit about 
domestic audiences and international audiences. And I'll be honest, when it comes to Olympics, I only watch the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony. And when I was watching the Sochi Olympics ones, because this was my first year in the UK, and I was watching it with my British friends, and they did not understand any of the references that the opening ceremony was trying to draw on because they were very much made for domestic audiences. Maybe for other ex-USSR republics, they would also be understandable. But that was something that I found quite interesting, considering that was an international event. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting observation. And actually, you know, I can, I can perhaps get your opinion and uh, interview some of your, some of your friends, because uh, it's, it's exactly the kind of insight that I'm interested in and uh, tr- trying to get a sense of how people with different interests, with different backgrounds... How do they engage with messaging, political communication, and so on that is embedded into such cultural outputs like the opening ceremonies, which get a lot of visibility and sort of are packed with meanings that may mean completely different things to sort of to different members of audiences, depending on where they're based and so, and so on. One of my dissertation chapters is on the opening ceremony. So uh, I've tried to sort of to analyze it as a site at, at which this sort of the process of negotiation of what contemporary Russia is today, how it tries to sort of present itself to both domestic and international observers, and then also get a sense of how this message is actually perceived and uh, it is interesting to hear that your friends thought that uh, it was kind of not really uh, understood and uh, not sort of coherent to international observers uh, i think the intention of the organizers ernst who was the one of the people at the helm of uh, producing the ceremony was saying that they did try to present the image of russia through the ceremony as seen from european eyes in, in quotation marks so basically not necessarily discuss russian national identity as it, it is perceived inside Russia, but sort of try to get at sort of the international perceptions of it. I mean, I'll, I'll provide a couple of points there. Uh, I think originally the, the organizers were trying to put in a segments, a significant segments in, in a ceremony on the Second World War, because obviously that's a huge part of the um, Russian national identity, Russian state building today. It's basically one of the sort of the foundational myths of the state today and the society, you know, the victory days, arguably, uh, certainly one of the most uh, important landmarks. And uh, because of the way that the ceremony is set up, I mean, you're not supposed to have any political messaging, but of course, you know, things are obviously political anyway. But so the, I think the International Olympic Committee has said that, no, basically you can't put segments on the Second World War in the way that you wanted to. And so basically they had to like, curtail the part of that ceremony and they had a very quick sort of transition between two other major scenes in the ceremony to commemorate uh, the second world war and instead focusing on things like war and peace russian ballet modernism in russian art in in the 20s and so on so it was was definitely a very particular vision of russia that the organizers did put on display and of course you know obviously it's a matter of interesting interpretation of how those visions and images of russia are actually perceived by the various members of the audience so i actually didn't watch the opening ceremony first so cheap but i just listening to what you're talking about then i was thinking about how the most recent opening ceremony in people's memories in that year would have been the london 2012 which was such a sort of almost parodic sort of celebration of every British stereotype you can imagine, sort of completely engineered for the sort of outsider view 
of the country, I feel. Like, the things that people might say they feel proud to be British about, but more like, if you asked an American to name 15 British things, what would they say? The Queen, James Bond, you know, really just hitting every stereotype note that you could. So the idea of doing something that's, like, it must have kind of set a precedent for the opening ceremony, having to perform a certain way, like the following Olympics, maybe. I mean, the ceremonies themselves, such a particular genre of communication on its own that, you know, they, they do follow this the tropes of narration, the, the sort of some of the tropes of the visual symbols that they use and the sort of the, the way that it's structured and so on. So, uh, I mean, I think basically each organizing state now kind of tries to get to get that particular vision of its own history, of its own people. And obviously this vision is tends to be quite uh, homogenizing and, you know, kind of building the nation exactly, you know, kind of trying to unite or present an image of, you know, sort of a, a united people and united uh, sort of history. Of course, you know, sort of paying, talking attention to the various issues of diversity as well. But, you know, it's, it's such, such a sort of tired genre of communication that it's hard to sort of to say that one ceremony is particularly stands out from the other. Obviously, you know, once once I sort of drill down to it and uh, uh, start start analyzing, there's very particular and interesting discoveries that, that become apparent. I mean, probably worth mentioning that the, I think that the ceremonies themselves, Soviet Union, like when, when Moscow hosted the Olympics in 1980, I think that that ceremony is quite sort of groundbreaking in the way that was uh, set up and the scale of it and so on and sort of it paved the way for the other uh, ceremonies to become this sort of its own thing that's, you know, is bigger than some sporting events, and unless you're sort of a sports fan, the thing that an average person may pay attention to if they're interested in, in it, in, in the sort of media events aspect rather than the sort of the sports that follow. You mentioned being in Vancouver. How does that compare to Vancouver? So the Vancouver and Sochi ceremonies were really two brilliant shows. I think um, the fans who remember it uh, do so fondly, and uh, it was it was uh, quite a spectacular show in either ceremony. However, the one thing that sort of jumps to my mind is the fact that you know some some people might forget one of the more memorable thing about the Sochi Olympics was the instance where one of the um, uh, Olympic rings did not open properly at the start of the ceremony. Money, and that was sort of caused a lot of jokes and sort of uh, fit in the uh, such a problems narrative that you know despite all that investment in the in the games you know there's still something imperfect there but few people at the time remember that in fact for years prior to that in Vancouver there was another sort of quite an embarrassing moment that happens one of the uh, legs of the Olympic cauldron uh, did not open in the pinnacle ceremony that's sort of really the, sort of the focal point of the whole proceeding where the uh, sort of the famous people from the country light light the Olympic uh, flame and the four people who were chosen to do it in Vancouver inside the stadium one the legs of the cauldron did not open so there was also kind of a, a really bit of an embarrassing moment and uh, something that caused a little bit of a bad impression perhaps but you know to the credit of both sets of organizers uh, both in Vancouver and in Sochi they sort of rectified this problem retrospectively in the, in the closing ceremony uh, they, they both played sort of jokes at the, at the fact that there's some technical problem that occurred in the opening and they sort of played jokes about it, sort of making light of the situation uh, to to both of the credits of the organizers. Perhaps the you know the the more interesting thing in, in the case of Sochi is that at the time of the live broadcast of the opening ceremony, when this uh, ring wasn't opening, the uh, TV engineer or directors swiftly switched to the uh, pre-recording of the um, practice run, 
And so for the viewers in Russia, the uh, that ring actually, in fact, did open. Whereas for the international viewers who were watching sort of the live feed, they, they of course, noticed the problem. But it was just kind of an interesting observation that, you know, the, for the people in Russia, they, they tried to create an impression that, in fact, this mistake didn't happen, even though, of course, sort of it, very quickly through social media and other news, they, the organizers, have, of course, acknowledged the problem. And uh, so perhaps it was a, a rush decision to, to try to sort of make this perfect impression of it but uh, but but yeah otherwise i mean both ceremonies were really spectacular and excellent and i think uh, sort of live on in the memory of the people who watched it yeah to some degree so i actually wanted to ask a little bit more about particularly the role of sport and why sport has been sort of the focus of your project because all of this conversation I suppose because we focused on the opening ceremonies has made me think there is another international mega event in which uh, it's all about a sort of national cultural production and also a proxy performance of international relationships. Vitaly why is the Olympics different from the Eurovision Song Contest? That's a very good question. And in fact, I am very interested in the uh, Eurovision as well. One of the uh, academic outputs that I did manage to produce during my PhD study is a chapter on Eurovision. So I am very much interested in both sporting mega events and media events such as Eurovision and, uh, and so on. I mean, you can probably draw multiple parallels between the two, but also sort of see how they're different quite a bit. In terms of the comparisons, yeah, obviously they're quite similar in the sense that different nations are sort of competing each other. There's a sense of camaraderie on the one hand, so of a global or European community that sort of comes together to celebrate, in the case of Olympics, you know, this sort of peace and ceasefire that, that officially is attached to it. In the case of Eurovision, this sort of big pan-European or even sort of global at this stage party where, you know, people come together and sort of celebrate the best of the world community. But at the same time, this obviously there's this sense of international competition there that you, you are cheering for your national team and sort of hoping for them to win and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's a very uh, apt comparison uh, between the two. And I think they simply probably just appeal to different audiences. I mean, as I say, I mean, in my own personal interest, I am a huge sports fan. Uh, whether it's ice hockey, football. So I am sort of naturally drawn to this event because I am curious to, to see sort of what happens on the pitch on the, in an ice rink. And, but I mean, I'm a big fan of music, but I have less personal investment in following Eurovision or less, you know, I don't also sort of the artists that participate in it. But I mean, this, this elements of uh, international competition on the one hand, but then also international cooperation on the other is, is quite fascinating and sort of something that unites the two. I was thinking particularly about what winning at the Olympics says about your country versus what winning at Eurovision says about your country, even though they're both sort of desirable things. There's obviously like big national discourses at play and whether it's seen to be better at, in air quotes, the arts or better at, in air quotes, sports, like what it sort of uh, produces in terms of national identity. Again, it's a very good comparison, and I think they produce similar effects, I would say. They just simply appeal to slightly different sort of segments of public. So not to generalize, but, you know, the sports, stereotypically, traditionally, it's, you know, the men who, who really care about sort of the, the ideas of masculinity and so on through through sport that you, you are sort of drawn to, to football games and, you know, you're sort of obsessed with, with the results there. And then sort of another another part of the society again, sort of generalizing uh, crudely here, but you would, would care about sort of the, the cultural and the, the artistic aspects. And, uh, you know, in, and in terms of the effects, I, I guess, you know, from the point of view of, of national identity and so on, I think it's a matter of uh, promoting this sort of cohesion that, you know, it sort of inspires 
different groups of people in different ways, but I think the effect is basically possibly the same. That you know, you I guess you probably get a boost, some sort of sense of pride and boost of patriotism and so on because your team or the the performer or group from your country won or sort of came quite close to or did well in in this sort of international competition. We usually invite our guests to uh, to share something funny or lighthearted from their research and ask if you had anything of that to share with us. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure how uh, funny other people will find it, but I was trying to think of any sort of interesting points in my research that, that sort of made myself giggle. I think when I moved on about halfway through, through my PhD research, when I moved on from the stage of uh, sort of looking at how the state is or the various state-sponsored actors try to project the image of the country through such things as the opening ceremony or their bid for the Olympics in the first place. I moved on to the issue of uh, sort of how different audiences interpreted uh, it. And one, one of the ways that I get at it uh, is simply by looking at online comments and sort of reactions to the efforts that the sort of the, the states put in. So I think at that point, one of my first sites where I was trying to get a sense of what people actually write or say about the way that the Russia staged the games, I think I looked at the recording of the uh, opening ceremony on YouTube, which was still online, and I basically sort of looked, downloaded the um, most popular comments there. And literally the first comment that I read, I, I, I took a screenshot of that, and I think even at the time I sort of I made note of it to my friends, and I sort of chuckled that. And so the, the comment under this YouTube video was, and I quote here, God bless Russia. It's a wonderful country where anything is possible. Russians are the most decent, loving, thoughtful people you will ever meet. Only Russia is capable of figuring out how to deal with banksters, corruption, and inequality. Join us and be free from hatred, greed, and ego. And so this comment uh, had a massive sort of discussion thread under it. I think it received tons of likes. And uh, for me, it was just, you know, literally as the first comment that I came across as a sort of as a response to to this official state efforts. Uh, such a sort of a funny and nuanced, I guess, reaction to it that's you know you can kind of analyze in different ways obviously i don't know whether this person was sarcastic whether they were somehow indeed sort of sincere in the sentiments you just you know kind of gave me a glimpse of the complexity of of interpretation of such events and sort of and the way that they are interpreted in the public domain sort of in the events aftermath that's really interesting how it mentions corruption this comment and my main memory of you know, the mm-hmm. running up to the games was a lot of comedy sketches about issues of corruption and building the infrastructure and everything that is associated with that. So that's that's quite interesting. For sure, for sure. And I think it sort of, you know, plays in, into the wider sort of conversations about the way that various Russia-sponsored actors or sort of the uh, sympathizers of Russia and so on, how they engage with various political issues you know, in which Russia takes place. So since completing my, my PhD and I've been working on the projects, ma- mainly focusing on uh, Russia's international broadcasting, so this uh, TV network RT or Russia Today, and analyzing the way that they approach covering it in various international developments, but also sort of reflect back on sort of the Russia's place in the international community and this various sort of international crisis and dynamics. And uh, sort of this comment that I just read kind of perfectly um, fits into the ethos, basically, of the way that the conversations do take place in, in that domain. So I, in a way, you know, Russia's Olympics or the World Cup are just simply one in sort of multiple touch points at which both, you know, people based in Russia, people based internationally sort of engage and overlap with, with various such 
dynamics. I mean, on the points of corruption in the Olympics, obviously, there's just so much sort of debate about uh, how various international organizations that sort of award or deal with, with these major events like the Olympics or the World Cup, and that they are basically corrupt themselves, that FIFA, you know, awards World Cups to Russia or to Qatar based on sort of yeah, illegal dealings and, and so on. So, you know, whatever there's comments about... Uh, that Russia is free of corruption, obviously, you know, just kind of understood in two ways that on the one hand, you know, obviously people play jokes about how, well, you know, obviously the, those Olympics were the most expensive in, in history and uh, uh, allegedly lots of funds have been sort of mishandled through this process. But at the same time, you know, the sort of the counter argument that Russia's sympathizers would say that, well, in fact, you know, is, is the West really that much better, you know, is is uh, all these issues are unique to Russia, or is Russia to blame for, for sort of all that it gets blamed for uh, in the international community. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's, uh, I just thought it was a, kind of an interesting point at, at which sort of all, the, all these different perspectives sort of combine and overlap. I was uh, just going to say, just in terms of sort of slightly funny coincidences, is that I've got like the Zoom window open and I can just like see, you know, Twitter shows you the news on the right and at the top of my Twitter sidebar is the story about Russia's Olympic band continuing for the next two Olympics. So I don't know if it can hear me through my microphone and has decided to show me that. In fact, I think it's, you know, that the story is, is still ongoing, probably is quite beneficial sort of, I mean, uh, being sort of, uh, what's the word? Not for the selfish reasons, but I think it's just quite good for my own sort of re- research uh, trajectory and that this topic still is still sort of in the news, that it's still ongoing, that the Sochi Olympics, even though they, you know, finished, what, six years ago by now, but, you know, it's still, the scandals around it is still ongoing and it sort of remains the site at which sort of the various political crises, the various sort of international debates about how, Russia is perceived, how it fits into the international community are ongoing. And obviously with events like the upcoming Olympics, the uh, Euros that Russia is due to co-host next summer, it will remain sort of an important and interesting point to, to see how this dynamic sort of play out. So yeah, it was, it was quite interesting to hear yes, just last night this news broke that uh, Russia was indeed banned for two years from hosting and officially taking part in major events. So I think there's some questions about whether Russia will be able to take, if it qualifies, if the team qualifies, if they'll be able to take part in the Qatar World Cup in a couple of years' time, uh, or if, if they will be able to, I mean, like in the Olympics, they may not be sort of able to wear the official kits or the, you know, having the the national badge or the color, uh, sorry, the, um, the national flag on the kits and so on. So, you know, it just kind of c- continues to be a fascinating and ongoing points of of debate. I was going to say actually that that must be something that's really interesting in terms of if we think of something like participating in the Olympics or participating in the World Cup as this sort of focal point of national pride because while Russia was banned from taking part in the last Olympics they still fielded a lot of athletes right they just weren't they, they, I can't remember what it was called, but they basically didn't like play under the flag. They weren't associated with Russia. How like is that an effective strategy as sort of a, a sanction? Yeah, it's a good, it's a very good question. And yeah, last Olympics in Pyeongchang was again a fascinating case with this uh, the official well, Russia not being able to to play, uh, Russian athletes not being able to be represented or play under their their own flag and not to be able to play the national anthem, whatever they want. 
anything. I mean, Russia, well, the Olympic athletes from Russia, as they were called them, the hockey team finally won the ice hockey competition, which is a sort of a huge sport for Nord- Nordic countries and uh, very prestigious and sort of historically it's been one of the, in terms of sports diplomacy and, and so on for, for the Soviet Union and for new Russia since since the Soviet collapse, Soviet Union's collapse. It was first major victory for the team in a couple of decades, basically, and they couldn't, you know, play play the anthem and so on when, when they actually finally won it. So it was, on the one hand, sort of a point of national embarrassment, but also a point of national pride. And how, how you perceive it is uh, is an interesting point. So again, domestically, it was probably a, a massive chance to celebrate, okay, we finally sort of won the, the Olympics in hockey, which is basically like the World Cup in football. Yeah, it's the same, uh, well, it's the equivalent. And then that was our chance to sort of, you know, for chess beating and say, well, you know, the West sort of can suck it. And uh, finally, you know, Russia sort of dominated uh, everybody, but then you know they couldn't do it out using their own flag and all the proper uniforms and so on. So uh, and it seems that it will, yeah, it, it will be the case again for the for the following Olympics too. There was there was an interesting debate in the media today actually saying if Russia qualifies and if they are allowed to take part in the Qatar World Cup, apparently this new ban sort of can ends uh, two days before the final is scheduled. So if by some miracle, if Russia does indeed make it to the final of the World Cup, which is obviously, you know, chances of that are very, very slim. But, you know, would they be allowed to play in the final having their own badge on and, and so on? So it's just, you know, quite, quite, quite interesting to see how, how things will develop from here. It would be quite interesting if that would be the first time we win the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if, if there's a chance to follow with the hockey success, uh, I guess that you would be quite surprising and uh, quite, quite, quite a story for sure. Yeah, but we're actually quite decent at hockey. Well, Vitaly, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, telling us all about your research. Absolutely fascinating stuff. We wish you lots of luck as well in everything you're doing now in the sort of postdoctoral world. Do you have anything to plug? Nothing in particular. I may have a couple of uh, new blogs actually coming out in relation to some of these most recent developments and scandals. Oh, exciting secret blogs about scandals. Anna, thank you so much for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you very much again, Vitaly, for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Audience, thank you for listening. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens in the podcast stays in the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.